Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father, let it never be said of us that we did not know Christ. As we open Your Word, we pray that You would reveal Yourself to us, that You would speak to us, that we would hear Your warnings and heed Your call. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The words that we've just read are most of the ending section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're saving the last little bit, which is the part about building on a firm foundation for next Sunday. But this morning, we're going to look at this section of text that takes us from the beginning, verse 12, which is the golden rule, through a series of charges that Jesus gives to those who seek to live in his kingdom. He gives us the golden rule and then gives us what we might think of as three lessons for true discipleship. He tells us to live for the sake of others, even though it's hard. He tells us to listen to true teachers, not false ones. He tells us to pursue knowledge of Christ, not outward appearances. As you look at the text in your order of worship, you'll see that it's divided into sections. And as we said earlier in the series, what Matthew has done here in the structure of his gospel is he's gathered the sayings of Jesus and he puts them into very deliberate sections. So, in a sense, as we read through the sermon, occasionally it reads like an anthology. It reads almost the way the book of Proverbs does, like a, a list of teachings that Jesus is, is transitioning from one into another. And oftentimes it's taught that way. Each of these sections could have a sermon devoted to it as a sort of standalone piece. But I think as you reflect on them, you'll see that there is a connection in these words, and it's a connection that is important. There's a recurring theme explicit in all of these lessons. 
that in a fallen world, whatever in doubt, the true followers of Jesus must take the hard way and not the easy one. In the golden rule, Jesus calls us to live for the sake of others, even though it's hard. Ordinarily, if you were teaching this passage, the golden rule would be the end of your text, not the beginning, because it's seen as a summary statement of what's happened already, the kind of stuff Jesus has already taught. It's like he gives you the golden rule to sum up the ground that's already been covered. But I don't want to just look at it as a summary of what's gone before. I want to think of it as a context for what's about to happen. That the things Jesus is about to teach us all are happening in the atmosphere of the golden rule. They're examples of how we might apply the golden rule and live it. When you take that rule itself, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, there are actually two parts to it in the way that Jesus teaches it here. The first part, he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. There it is, that's the rule, but he doesn't stop there. He adds this, but this is the law and the prophets. So he gives the principle itself, which is to do unto others, to treat others, to judge others, the way that you yourself would want to be treated or judged. But then he also gives the rationale behind it, the why. Why would you live the golden rule? He says that this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this fulfills the law and the prophets. Or what the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was trying to teach is this. This is a summary, not just of what Jesus has said already in the sermon. It is a summary of that Old Testament inheritance. Essentially, he's making the same point that Paul will make later in his epistles in Romans 13.8 when he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then in Galatians 5.13 and 14, he says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when Paul says those words, he's not just making it up. He's not getting a new insight from the Holy Spirit. He's quoting the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18, which teaches, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what's being expressed by Jesus' words, that in loving one another, in loving your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling what God has called you to do. And the point is, if you're wondering, how do I do this? How do I fulfill the golden rule? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Well, it means treating your neighbor the way you yourself would like to be treated. Putting the needs of your neighbor ahead of your own need. That's what love looks like. And that sounds great. Until you actually try to do that. When you actually try to live that way, to love your neighbor, you will discover that your neighbor is unlovable. That your neighbor is difficult to love. That sometimes on a good day, it's possible for you to, to, to love your neighbor. But if your neighbor is really giving you kind of the full self, it becomes really hard. You might be tempted to think this is one of those like pious ideas that in a perfect world it would be great if we could love that way, but in the real world we can't. But Jesus knows what the real world is like and tells you to do this anyway. 
He knows that it's hard, in other words, and the fact that it's hard doesn't take away from the teaching. Jesus follows the golden rule up with a kind of dichotomy, a choice. You can go one way or you can go the other. There are two paths in life. They're symbolized by the two gates and the two gates that that open onto two ways, and the two ways lead to two different destinations. There's a wide gate that leads to an easy way, but its destination is destruction. And then there's a narrow gate that leads to a hard way, but its destination is life. It's as, as if Jesus is saying, choose you this day what path you will take. Will you take the easy path or the hard one? Yes, what I've taught you is hard. It is difficult to do. If you pursue this path, it will be hard, but it leads to life. If you don't, if you take the other way, that will be easy. But it does lead to destruction. Which way do you want to go? Jesus asks us. The reality is that self-indulgence, the pursuit of worldly happiness, is the easy path. And it is the path that most people take. It is the path that you see exemplified all around you. If you're going to live your life according to the examples being set all around you, you will take the easy way. If you pursue the things that the world pursues, if you let yourself be caught up in the current of human passions, the way is easy. You can relax. You don't have to constantly fight. But the easy way leads to destruction. Jesus calls you to take a different path. But by definition, that path will be hard. Yes, it leads to life, and life is good. But make no mistake, Jesus tells us it is hard. It is a narrow gate to enter through. It's made narrow by the teachings of Christ, by the will of the Father, by the things we must do, even though they are difficult. But that difficult way is the way that leads to life. The implication, the charge is, take the hard way and and head towards life. The question behind that question, though, is what are you living for? What are you living for? If the question that your life is asking is how to get the most out of now, if you're living your life to try to enjoy the most that you can, to have the richest experiences before it's too late, if that's the way you are living your life, then obviously the wide gate and the easy path seem to be best. If the only reward that there is to live for is reward in this life, then obviously the easy way is best. And this is why people take it. But if we're striving to live the life to come, if we believe that the best rewards are the rewards that come to us in the life to come, in that case, we have no choice but to take the hard way. Indulgence is easy, but obedience is hard. Even so, take the hard way. Take the hard way, Jesus says. And then he says, listen to true teachers and beware of false ones. Because there's a problem on the path, on the journey, 
as you're, you're trekking along this hard way, the question is, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Because the challenge to doing something hard is that it's an effort that has to be sustained. You're always looking for, for more commitment. You're always looking to endure. You're looking for support from outside. You're turning to people to, to help you keep traveling down this difficult path. And there will always be people telling you, look, it doesn't have to be that hard. You're making it harder than it needs to be. This could be so much easier if you would just listen to me. It's bad enough when the people telling you this are out there. But what if the people telling you this are in here, inside the church? That's even worse. So Jesus tells us, be careful who you listen to. He warns us about false prophets. And the prophetic office throughout Scripture is a teaching office. When we think of prophecy, we think of predicting the future. But that was a small subset of what prophets did. The main thing that prophets did was declare the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. The prophets spoke for the Lord. So a false prophet speaks, as it were, with the authority of Scripture, but teaches contrary to it. Some teachers to put it more simply, are wolves. Some teachers are wolves. And the danger of, as Jesus puts it, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a wolf in disguise, is that the wolf in sheep's clothing is accepted into the flock. The wolf is a predator, but he's allowed inside the flock. And a predator inside the community is so much deadlier than one who is outside. Because against those who are outside, against those who are admittedly against Jesus, you're on your guard. If somebody comes along and says, you don't have to take the hard way because Jesus is wrong, you're going to realize this is bad advice. This is not advice that is coming to me from Jesus. But if somebody comes along and says, I am speaking in the name of Jesus, and I tell you, you don't have to take the hard way, that's more difficult because they're telling you what you want to hear in the name of the one that you're supposed to listen to. The question is, how can you tell the difference? You have a bunch of teachers, and all of them claim to be speaking in the name of Jesus. How do you know who's telling the truth and who's not? Well, Jesus says, by their fruits. You can tell by their fruits. And he says it twice to form a kind of inclusio, brackets, around this teaching. He repeats the phrase at the end in verse 20 that he says in verse 16 to show all this stuff goes together. And in the heart of that is a metaphor about trees. Two trees bearing two kinds of fruit. Now that picture of, of healthy trees bearing good fruit and Diseased trees bearing bad fruits is a more concrete way of saying something like uh, ideas have consequences, right? That the, the fruit, the, the uh, influence will flow from the underlying assumption. Or action flows from the heart. That if you want to know a person's heart condition, you can look at what they do because those actions flow from 
the heart. There are two parts of the warning here. The first is something like this. Choose the right kind of tree or the right kind of teacher, the right kind of prophet. Jesus points out that trees produce fruit after their kind. If you're listening to a teacher who is a teacher of man's wisdom, don't expect to pull the fruit of God's wisdom off of that tree. That doesn't make sense. A teacher of man's wisdom will teach you man's wisdom. That's the idea. So you want a teacher of God's wisdom. A lot of wisdom today if you think about it, is is kind of a mix of self-help on the one hand and and social science on the other. But oftentimes, if you mix those things together, it sounds really good and can sound even very spiritual in a way. But don't be surprised if the fruit is wrong, if you're picking it off the wrong tree. If the teachers who are forming you and shaping you are more committed to the wisdom of the world than they are to the wisdom of Scripture. Don't be surprised the fruit that you get. You can't gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. Pick the wrong tree, you get the wrong fruit. But there's a second aspect of the analogy as well, which is not only pick the right kind of tree, but also make sure the tree is healthy. The tree may say Jesus on it, But if it's a diseased tree, then the fruit that it produces will be bad. Not every teacher who claims to be a Jesus tree, in other words, is actually producing Jesus fruit. A healthy tree bears good fruit. You can eat of that, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit and you should avoid it. That's easy. You can know it by taste. You can taste and see if the fruit is good. Assuming, though, that you have a taste for good fruit. Assuming that you know what it's supposed to taste like. The question is, how do you develop that taste? I think I've told you before in sermons, I'm I'm sort of a picky eater. I have a very narrow range of familiarity. So there are a lot of things that you could feed me, bad fruit, so to speak, that when I tasted it, I wouldn't know if it was bad or if it's supposed to taste that way. In my ignorance, it could be either one. And as a result, occasionally I have actually consumed things that were bad, thinking, oh, I don't know why people like this. And it turns out people don't like this. I just didn't know any better. So there's a a problem here, because Jesus speaks about it with great simplicity. Like, just taste the fruit and you'll know what kind of tree it is. But that does assume that you have a knowledge of what good fruit tastes like. Where would you acquire knowledge like that? If you read Calvin's commentary on this text, he explains it simply enough. You find that in Scripture. If you want to know what good fruit tastes like, you need to know God's Word. You need to be familiar with His revelation, and then you will know what is good, and you will be able to tell what isn't. The way that you evaluate the fruits of the, the prophet is not just by looking at the life and seeing how he lives it. Calvin makes this point as well. He says, if all Jesus had in mind here was asking yourself, okay, does that guy walk the talk? Does that guy practice what he preaches? He says to be humble, but is he humble? 
In some cases, it would be easy to see. This guy claims to be humble, but he flies around in a private jet. Yeah, that's an unhealthy tree. But what do you do with a person who teaches false doctrine and lives a more or less holy life? Calvin says it's possible to do that. It's possible for someone who doesn't truly teach Jesus' doctrine to live a life that looks more or less like a Christian life, so that if all we were doing was judging whether or not they were living rightly, we could be deceived. So he suggests, in addition to that, that we look at what they teach and how it lines up with Scripture. Because through Scripture, we develop a taste for what is good. He makes another point that I think is worth mentioning. You shouldn't use the fact that there are so many different kinds of teachers claiming to speak in the name of Jesus to develop a kind of an ambiguity or an uncertainty that leads you to accept no teaching at all. The fact that there are false teachers doesn't justify an ambivalence towards all teaching. Jesus calls us not to skepticism, but to discernment. And there is a difference. We're not meant to be unteachable. We're just meant to be discerning in who we listen to, to beware of bad teaching. Because skepticism is actually easy, but discernment is hard. And once again, Jesus is calling us to take the hard way. He also tells us to pursue knowledge of Christ, not just outward appearance. In the final section, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, we see that difference illustrated. Well, the difference between knowing Christ and being able to do mighty works in the name of Christ. And strange enough, it is possible for a person to do mighty works and yet not know Christ which explains how it's possible for wolves sometimes to fool sheep. How it's possible for us, although we develop a taste for what is true and good, to be deceived sometimes by false teachers, by those who seem to be uh, doing great works, and yet they didn't even know Jesus truly. Jesus says that those unhealthy trees will be cut down and burned, that the false prophets will be punished. And here you see a scene of judgment on that day, a future tense day of judgment scene where Jesus himself is doing that very thing. Telling us, in effect, even if the wolves fool the sheep, they'll not get away from the shepherd. They cannot deceive the shepherd because he doesn't judge by outward appearances. He judges the hearts. That emphasis on knowing by fruits is important, but it doesn't give us the knowledge of the heart that only God possesses. And it could lead us to a wrong emphasis in our discipleship. By their fruit you will know them. If you have that drilled into you and you have the idea that you're going to be sort of inspecting the fruit that people produce and that other people might be judging and inspecting the fruit that you produce, one takeaway from that would be to focus on works. That you should focus on doing things that look like healthy fruit. That you should focus on living the kind of life that will pass scrutiny. That you should manage appearances 
so that people at church, when they are asked about you, will say, oh no, he's a healthy tree. Just look at the healthy fruit that his life produces. As if the emphasis of discipleship were on producing the right kind of fruits. Now, as I say that out loud, there's a little voice in my head objecting, and it's the voice of, of Mark who sat through thousands of sermons, and he's saying, but, but that is the point of discipleship. Surely the focus of discipleship is on producing healthy fruit. We want to have this, this manifestation of obedience, of works, out of gratitude. Like that is the focus of the Christian life, surely. And yet here as you read these words, I think Jesus is telling us, not so fast. As important as obedience is, as important as it is, out of gratitude, to do what God has called us to do, that is not what we seek first and foremost in the Christian life. We are not seeking to manage outward appearances, to do good things so that we appear to be good people. Instead, we are pursuing just one thing, which is knowledge of Christ. It's all about chasing after knowledge of Christ. If it's true, as Jesus says, that you could do mighty works in His name, that you could do miracles in His name and yet not know Him, and it is true, Judas is a perfect example to fit that description. If that's true, then we can't just chase after works. We can't just chase after the spiritual empowerment that allows you to to heal It allows you to work miracles in the name of Jesus. Instead, we must pursue knowing Him. And it is better to know Him than to do all of those other things. Not to take anything away from those things, but to do those things and not to know Him? It's hard to imagine a greater tragedy. Hypocrites may claim to follow Jesus, to work in His name, But they've still taken the easy way because the hard way is to pursue inward knowledge of Christ. To pursue knowing Him. So don't pursue outward appearance. Pursue inward knowledge of Christ. If your discipleship is focused on works alone, on advancing in the flock while managing your appearance, then you're missing the whole point of discipleship. Don't focus on good works and hope that knowledge will follow. Instead, flip that around. Focus on knowing Christ and let obedience follow. Focus on knowing Him and the rest will follow. Don't say, I want to please Him. I want to impress Him. I want to do great things for Him. Instead say, I want to know Him. I want to know Him. Here at Grace... You'll sometimes hear us say, you can't share grace until you've found grace. Once you find grace, you're going to share it. This is why. Because the important thing in the life of our church is that we know Christ. Nothing else could come before that. Nothing else matters more than you knowing Christ. That is the whole goal of discipleship. It's a challenge, though. As Calvin says, the fallen human being, the fallen self, wants to be deceived. We want to be deceived. And worse, we're skilled at deception. We want to lie to ourselves and we're good liars. 
And that means it's easy to lie to ourselves about who we are, and certainly about who Christ is. It's easy to accept the world's wisdom and live by it. It's easy to listen to the influences that tell us what we want to hear. It's easy to manage appearances without redirecting our hearts towards Him. Self-deception is easy, but to truly know yourself and to know Christ truly is hard. Jesus says, take the hard way. The last thing I want to say to you, you might think of as a lesson from your mother. But it's also a lesson from Scripture, so I think it's going to be okay. Taking the hard way means making hard sacrifices. It means listening to hard teaching sometimes. It means submitting to hard self-examination. But hard doesn't mean harsh. There is a difference between the two things. If you tell yourself, I want to listen to him because he's harsh, and I know I'm supposed to take the harsh way, you've completely missed what Jesus is teaching. Hardship and harshness are very different. Sometimes it's very easy for us to be harsh. Jesus compares the kind of hardship that we're called to to the pains of childbirth. You look in John chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, he says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The analogy, if you think about it, is this. Motherhood, Jesus says, that's a hard way. That's a hard way. It starts with pain. But after the pain of childbirth, that anguish is not remembered because of the joy of new life, which is true, but it's not the whole truth. Because sometimes echoes of pain return in the task of parenting. You might think the pain of childbirth is sort of a get-to-know-you experience, setting expectations for what the rest of the journey is going to be like. Because motherhood is a hard way. It doesn't start hard and then get easy. It continues to be hard indefinitely. And yet, it leads to life. It leads to life. And it isn't meant to be harsh. The response of a mother to all of that pain is to love more that sometimes unlovable child. Not to say, you hurt me and now I'm going to hurt you. Hard, but not harsh. That's the difference. Because the hard way of Jesus is also the gracious way. Because as he says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a hard way, yes, but what is hard in the flesh is made easy in the Spirit. Jesus has taken a hard way so that our way to Him could be eased by his grace. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus continues to chart this hard path, this difficult path, but it's never a harsh one. He calls us to a hard way. He doesn't call us to be hard people. When you take up your cross and follow him, what is easy in the world starts to seem hard to you and harsh to you. What you once thought of as love Stop seeming so loving. 
Instead, as you take up your cross and follow Him, what is hard in the world becomes glorious in your eyes. So let us as a people, as a church, renew our determination to take the hard way we follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.